This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks direct from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby and I run the Talks and Ideas program here. War is often regarded as primarily a male domain, and yet its impact can hit women the hardest. It's often their role to keep families together as they're fleeing from conflict zones, and it's women's bodies that are most vulnerable to the weaponised use of sexual violence. Waiwai Nu is a Rohingya human rights lawyer who was advocating for the rights of women in her community. In this session, she's joined by Emma Hogan, the Southeast Asian correspondent for The Economist, and Nicola Henry, an associate professor from RMIT. Please be aware that this talk does contain discussion of sexual violence, so maybe stop here if that's a problem for you. The event was chaired by Fauzi Ibrahim. Now, over the last five to six years or so, the refugee crisis has been the main headlines throughout most uh, news in the evening and, and, and news um, print media as, as well. Closer to home, it is the Rohingya crisis that we're all talking about. Um, for those of you who may not be reading the newspapers or not really know about the Rohingya refugee crisis, and I doubt it because you all are here, that's why you know about it, um, this is an ethnic group that is fleeing persecution in Myanmar. They are being persecuted by the military. They are a stateless community who live, uh, who have lived for generations in the northern Rakhine state, but the Myanmar government refuses to recognize them as citizens. Military operations have driven them from their homes and across into Bangladesh and other parts of Southeast Asia. Thousands of them are languishing in refugee camps. Many have been killed in violence targeting this ethnic group. Those most vulnerable, of course, are women who have been the targets of sexual assault. They've watched their loved ones be torn from their arms. They've watched their husbands, their brothers, their children be killed in front of their eyes. They've seen their families torn apart. Today, you will meet our sterling panel, who can all speak of their personal experience of this particular refugee crisis and of the justice that may or may not be afforded to the women who suffer. Let's now meet our panelists. <laughs> First up, Waiwai Nu is a democracy and women's rights advocate from Myanmar who established the Women's Peace Network. And next to Waiwai uh, is Emma Hogan, who is Southeast Asia correspondent for The Economist, and she has reported extensively on the refugee crisis across the Mediterranean and in Bangladesh as well. Nicola Henry, right at the end there, uh, is an associate professor and vice-chancellor Vice-Chancellor's Principal Research Fellow at RMIT University and the author of the book, War and Rape. Please make welcome our panellists today. Why, why, if you could start us off. Thank you so much. Um, it's so lovely to see you this evening, and thanks for joining us today. Actually, I have been so moved by uh, seeing the movement like uh, Me Too and Time's Up as the first time in the history where the issue of sexual violence has been getting so much attention, uh, at least in the United States. And 
I really want to see that attention go beyond that, mainly to the conflict-affected areas. And the rape, using as a weapon of war, has been there in the history, and it's been continuing until today. Rape has been used not only just as psychological warfare to humiliate women population, but also it has been used to traumatize and destroy the entire population. And it's been ongoing, and women has been used as a tool in different purposes in different conflict. And it's such a shame that. Although you know everybody knows it's been happening, it's been ongoing, it's been there, but it's such a shame that until today we have to discuss about this issue using rape as a weapon of war to traumatize and to actually to humiliate uh, uh, people. So it's mean that half of the human populations in the world. Has been humiliated and has been has not been respected as human as other human being. So, and it's 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 such a shame for uh, for the uh, human society. It's still there. It has not been solved, and I think it's because of the failure of the political leadership, plus the failure of our society as a whole. To really tackle this in effective way. In December uh, last year, November 16, Human Rights Watch has released a report called "All My Body Was Pain." It's a report of sexual violence by the Burmese military against Rohingya women in Burma. And I was while I was reading the news. I am, as a Rohingya member, I know what's happening in the ground. I have been contacted to my community people, women and men there. I know how what is the suffering is. But when I read the report, I feel I cannot stop my tears. How severe and how systematic and how brutal is rape and gang rape and sexual violence. In fact, sexual violence in Burma. Is not a new thing. Rape, using as a weapon of war, has been systematically documented and presented to the world, to UN, by many courageous women, women,、uh, women groups in the past. But yet, it's not being paid attention, or respected, or taken、uh, seriously to really tackle. Or address and rape using as a、uh, weapon of war. Under the humanitarian law, you know, rape is actually prohibited by the laws of war. But still, countries like Burma and other countries in Sudan, in Congo, and many other countries has been using. No country, no state has been. Taken into the account,、uh, hold accountable for their, for 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 using rape as a weapon of、uh, a war, while 
there has been accountability on using other uh, prohibited weapon. So why not rape is taken seriously in conflict? This is one of the main reasons why it's been continuing, and it's continuing. And I actually been, after the report, I have been, I, I, I talked to many women victims. In fact, their suffering, their experience was much more than in the, in the report. Um, sorry, I've been very emotional. And I think it is time for all of us to really take the issue of rape in conflict area seriously, to make our leaders accountable, to use all the mechanisms. There are mechanisms already uh, by the UN, by the government, that they have agreed to tackle this issue. But there is no effective or proactive measures to really handle this issue. There are UN Security Council resolutions, um, you know, 188, uh, uh, 2018, or there are many other um, uh, Security Council resolutions um, and many other agreements, and, and even uh, under the Rome's statutes, the rape and sexual violence is war crimes or crimes against humanity, or even could be genocide as ele uh, 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 you know, elements of genocide. But yet, it's been continuing. It's such a shame. I think it is time for all of us to really bring uh, the issue of sexual violence in conflict uh, to, uh, to uh, bring to the discussions and really ask for the accountability and, um, uh, and you know, to really end the uh, uh, rape, using rape as a uh, weapon of war. And I do believe it is our responsibility to hold our governments accountable and to bring the... the the perpetrators uh, accountable and to bring peace and justice for uh, victims of sexual violence. Otherwise, it is against a hum uh, our dignity. It is, it is insulting. It is, in fact, it is insulting the entire human population. It is unacceptable. It's not okay. We still have to say it is not okay to use uh, rape as a weapon of war. And I believe women deserve, we deserve respect, dignity, and security. Thank you. Emma, you've um, covered this particular issue extensively. Tell us what you've found. Yes, well, thank you also for having me here. It's, it's a great honor to be, be with these guests. Um, I'm, I'm a journalist, so I can only really talk about what I've seen. Uh, and I went to the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh uh, late last year in October. Um, and I thought I had experience of refugee camps. Uh, before that, I wrote about Europe and the migration crisis in Europe. Uh, I went to, it was on, in Greece when Syrian refugees were coming over from Turkey. I spent time in Turkey talking to people smugglers. I was in, in sort of Germany speaking to refugees there and in Croatia. What I saw in Europe and what is in Europe is, is squalid often. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of, it's, it's a disaster that we have uh, sort of these huge refugee camps in places like France. Um, but what I saw in Europe didn't prepare me for what I saw in Bangladesh. So I wanted to use these sort of opening remarks to sort of lay out what I saw. Um, they're huge camps. 
Uh, so that has to be em emphasized first. I mean, Kuta Palong, the, the largest, had, had already hundreds of thousands of people in it before the recent, recent sort of migration across. So now it has about 400,000 when I was there. I think now it's more, so 500,000 or so. So that's a small town, basically. And they're shantytown-like places. Uh, they have been built up uh, sort of sporadically by the refugees themselves. So they all live in sort of bamboo huts with sort of plastic covering them. Uh, there's sort of the, the, the sort of the roads, if you think it can be called roads, are, are muddy, uh, are full of sort of full of dirt and, and excrement and, and trash. Uh, people uh, sort of there's you know, hundreds of children, most many of them naked, running around, uh, sort of bathing in, in muddy pools. Um, and it's it's just a sort of a degree of, sort of squalor which I haven't I haven't encountered. Uh, for aid workers, it's incredibly difficult because because they've been you know, built up in a sort of sort of hodgepodge way. It's very hard to access. So for me to get into them, I had to get out of the car and walk sometimes for for 20, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. This is in other camps of down down south as well because there's, there's many of them. Kutupalong is the largest, and you sort of walk along a sort of uh, walkways through paddy fields uh, to get to them. It's it sort of to get aid to these people is therefore all done by foot, uh, which really has to be emphasized that sort of that's incredibly hard. You know, organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders, they have a thousand people working there, or, or they did when I was there in October, and they all have to go and find people by foot. It, it, it's, it's, it's a really torturous process, process for them. So disease is, is rife. Uh, the potential for exploitation is rife as well, particularly with, with women and, and children. Um, I, I'd also say that I think you know, it's, 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 they're just not ideal situations for any, anyone to be in. Um, there's monsoon season coming soon, um, and I think that it's appalling that they're still in these, in these places. Um, so generally, that's, that was my experience of it. And what I was also struck by when I went there uh, was that most of the people I spoke to were women. Uh, when I spoke to people in uh, Greece, it was mostly families, uh, Syrian families, Iraq fa Iraqi families, Afghan families. Um, and I often talked to the, 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 the male of the household would be the one that wanted to talk to me. In this case, it was often women I spoke to. Um, many of them had lost their husbands. Uh, many of them had lost all of their family. Um, and they all spoke to me about things that either had happened to them or others that they knew of. And they said that you know, unspeakable things had happened. This is a phrase that I've, 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 I've encountered also uh, when I was writing about Europe, when I, when I was on a migrant boat uh, off the coast of Libya, uh, where most of the people there were sub-Saharan African migrants. And they're held in terrible conditions in Libya, and most of the women are raped. And again, there's this phrase, unspeakable things happened. Um, and so it's, it's very clear that wherever there's a refugee crisis, the vulnerable, so the children and women, are going to be hit the hardest in some respects. I mean, obviously, it's, hit the hardest is not quite the right phrase because you know, there's a whole degree of, of things happening. But if you can imagine these women, they've lost their, lost their families, they've walked for four days, they haven't eaten, um, they've slept in forests and sort of... They're incredibly scared about what, what might happen. And then they land in this squalid camp. Um, and yeah, it was incredibly shocking. So that's, that's what I wanted to sort of lay out the picture. Emma, thank you.
Nicola, if you could just sort of talk to us about sexual assault used in the, the, the concept of, of war conflict. Yeah, sure. So thanks so much for, for having me and, and I'm delighted to be on such a great panel. Um, so if we take a, a sweeping look at sexual violence throughout the history of conflict, I think we'd all agree on at least three things. One is that sexual violence and conflict has been incredibly prolific and widespread throughout the history of warfare. The second is that women and girls are disproportionately victims of sexual violence and conflict, and males are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of sexual violence um, during wartime. And the third is that there has been, um, as YY has pointed out, has been much impunity um, for wartime sexual violence throughout history. And impunity has been the, the, the rule rather than the exception. However, there is a misconception that sexual violence hasn't been prohibited under international criminal law until recently, or that there weren't international or local war crimes prosecutions prior to the 1990s. Actually, sexual violence in wartime was widely prohibited under international law, um, and it has been for a very long time, and there have been a number of prosecutions throughout history, um, international war crimes courts and local courts. However, the, the prosecution of wartime sexual violence has been selective, sporadic and incomplete. Right. So it wasn't until the 1990s that sexual violence received serious international attention. Uh, in, um, the, but prior to that, in the post-Second World War um, trials, we had the Nuremberg Tribunal, uh, where rape wasn't even listed. Um, on the Nuremberg Charter, despite a lot of evidence being presented at the Nuremberg Tribunal, uh, there were no prosecutions for sexual violence um, then. And the other thing too was um, the, there was a 179-page Nuremberg judgment and not once is the word rape mentioned. And then we jump to the Tokyo War Crimes Trial, which was uh, also another international court that was set up after the Second World War, uh, now, again, rape wasn't explicitly listed in the Tokyo Charter. However, uh, rape was included in the indictment and a number of defendants were actually charged for um, rape crimes um, that were included as part of the charge of um, ch charging um, defendants for war crimes. Um, however, many of you will know that at the Tokyo War Crimes Trial um, that the systematic sexual enslavement of between 20... Um, sorry, 50,000 to 200,000 comfort women um, was not prosecuted at all, despite um, there being a lot of evidence and knowledge of the operation of the comfort system, both before and during the Second World War. So then we jump to the 1990s. Um, in 1993, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, also known as the ICTY, or the Yugoslav Tribunal, was set up to deal with atrocities that were committed during the 1990s conflicts in the former Yugoslavia. Then in 1994, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, also known as the ICTR, um, was set up to deal with the Rwandan genocide that was committed um, in 1994. And then, of course, we have, um, in 2002, the establishment of the first permanent international war crimes court, known as the International Criminal Court. So since the establishment of these contemporary international war crimes courts, 
Um, rape in wartime is no longer seen as a byproduct or a spoil of war. Um, it's now seen as an instrument of genocide, as a, as a, as a weapon of war or a, um, a military strategy. And we do have, in those contemporary war crimes, international war crimes courts, we have sexual violence crimes like rape and enforced prostitution, enforced sterilisation, sexual enslavement, explicitly listed on the statutes of those um, courts. There are protective measures in place to protect uh, victim survivors of, um, to avoid as much as possible, for instance, of re-traumatisation in the courtroom. Um, so special measures, for example, are like you know um, having the sessions and in closed sessions, the trials and closed sessions, um, or having um, voice distortion, or preventing the witness from actually having to see the accused by putting a screen up. So there have been a number of really good protective measures that are in place. There's victim and witnesses units that are set up in the courts um, that have specialist training in terms of trauma and, and sexual violence trauma. Uh, for the first time at the International Criminal Court, the first time in history, uh, victim survivors are able to express their views and their concerns. They're entitled to legal representation. We know in, in domestic context, sexual violence, witnesses don't have access to legal representation, so that's a really good um, success associated with the contemporary international war crimes courts. And also, um, witnesses may also be awarded reparations and restitution and compensation through a trust fund through the International Criminal Court. But also, quite significantly and importantly, compared to those historic war crimes trials that I mentioned earlier, is that rape has been prosecuted um, and, and defendants have been convicted for rape as a form of, um, as a crime against humanity, as a war crime, and also as a crime of genocide. So finally, the international community is seeing uh, sexual violence as, as a, an issue that's of serious concern to the international community. Um, however, as many fem feminist practitioners and scholars and others have pointed out, is that, we, that there's, a, there's a gap between what's on paper and what's actually happening in practice. So unfortunately, there are a number of factors that hinder the prosecution of wartime sexual violence at international criminal courts. And they include things like the lack of political will, the failure of prosecutors to investigate sexual violence and to include sexual violence in the indictments. Um, they include limited powers of arrest, delays and lengthy trials. So the, um, it's estimated that it'll take um, 100,000... Oh, sorry, 110 years, not 100,000 years, 110 years to um, prosecute um, the Rwandan accused persons because there's so many people um, that participated in the Rwandan genocide. Victims often do not get to testify, only a very few get to testify in the end. Um, they often don't get to tell their stories because what we're talking about is an adversarial context. Um, and then there's also the, the, the trauma of seeing the accused in court. Sometimes the accused in court, most often times, is not going to be the person that sexually violated them. It'll be most often like a, a leader, a military or a political leader. And then, of course, because it's an adversarial context, there are extremely hostile cross-examination techniques that defence lawyers adopt um, to undermine the credibility of witnesses. Um, there's a whole bunch of other factors that hinder the prosecution of sexual violence at contemporary war crimes courts, um, and I'm happy to discuss them in the, in the panel discussion that follows. Thank you. Nicola, thank you.
That was Fazia Ibrahim, chairing a session with Nicola Henry, Emma Hogan and YY Nu. They were at All About Women in 2018. And we'll be back next week with another live recording from the festival. So we'll see you then.